All right, so this is Biblical Theology Course Seminar, Week 9 on Mission. And if you're listening to the podcast, you can look in the show notes and you'll see a link there where you can go out and download the handout for tonight's lesson. Uh, so be sure to do that. You can follow along. Um, why don't we pray and we'll get started. Father God, it's grateful for these folks that are here tonight, uh, grateful to sit around a table and have good conversation earlier and eat a good meal together. Um, so grateful for this church family and for Family Night at Grace and for young students that are being taught your word now tonight and for younger kids who are being taught your word. Show us much of who you are, encourage our hearts all of us, adults and young ones alike, and help us to understand more of who Jesus is and how to grow closer to him and closer to you, Father, by the power of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so do you recognize this song? Not that song. This song. Yes. Yes, right. While I think that Tom Cruise is kind of a weirdo, like not as an actor, like in his personal life, and I certainly don't hold to his spiritual belief system. That man can make an action movie, I'm just saying. And our family has thoroughly enjoyed his Mission Impossible series of films, and we're actually looking forward to the new one, which I just found out is actually a two-parter, so I guess I'm looking forward to the next two films. And why is that? Why do I love those films? Well, despite the fact that you know, right, how it's going to turn out in the end, because there's, whatever, seven of them now, the mission is, in fact, not impossible, right? Like, that's what you know when you watch each of these movies. It is a hoot to go along for the ride to see what crazy things and unbelievable things are attempt attempted and accomplished by mere humans with an objective set before them and the zeal to complete that objective, right? That's the whole deal. It all starts out with that message delivered on all kinds of different contraptions. Maybe it's in a telephone booth. Maybe it's a little cassette player in the first film because it was kind of old and there were still cassette players. Maybe even if you've watched as a kid the really old Mission Impossible, like the TV series, right? And what did it always say near the end of the message? This message is going to self-destruct in 10 seconds and then poof, a little puff of smoke would happen and it was gone. But right before that statement, this is going to self-destruct. Do you remember what was always at the end of the description of the mission? Of the mission? This is your mission if you choose to accept it. And of course, they always did, right? Because if they didn't, there wouldn't be a movie. <laughs> it would have ended after five minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Peter Graves. I remember watching those as a kid. 
The word mission is not in the Bible, but the word from which it emerges, sent, surely is. So it is that the concept of mission or a commission is in the Bible because the word mission simply means the vocation or calling of a religious organization, especially a Christian one, and this is from Webster's, to go out into the world and to spread its faith. If you've been here in the biblical theology class in previous weeks, or if you haven't and you want to listen to the other ones, you can go on the podcast that maybe if you're listening to right now and you can listen to those previous weeks, you know that we've been tracing different themes throughout the scriptures, right? Throughout the biblical canon, seeing different stories or the same overall story and seeing different layers to that story. Now, the goal of the class tonight is to see the layer throughout the story of mission. What is God's mission for humanity? What is God's mission for his special people? What we call the local church family. What is his mission for you? And there's been a heated discussion probably, it started a little while ago, probably about six or seven years ago, around this topic. One group will say the Great Commission is the mission of the church. For example, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their book say that in the book by the same name, what is the mission of the church? The Great Commission. Others will say it's loving God and our neighbor as ourselves. What's that? Not the Great Commission, but the Great, the great Commandment. Or some will say it's bearing the image of God from Genesis, the cultural mandate. And all of this has implications for what we do as a church and how we direct our budget. Should we direct it towards staff, missionaries, caring for the poor, digging water wells? How should we spend the money that's given to Grace Church? So you should be thinking about this if you're a part of this church family. What is the mission of the church or your mission as a church family member? I can remember years ago sitting across the table at a lunch from a godly brother who had founded, um, he owned, ran his own business, actually started multiple businesses. He was a really gifted entrepreneur. And, and so he would start these businesses and build them and run them and turn them into something really successful. And he was really, really good at it. At the time that I was having lunch with him in this moment, he had two companies that he was running. And not only that, he was running these companies that he really loved and he was balancing that, those demands with being a loving husband and a doting father. Um, and at the time I was, as I'm sitting across the table for him, I was just beginning to be trained for ministry. So I was working part-time. I worked in the corporate world full-time for 13 years. I was working part-time at this moment and getting trained part-time for ministry. And at one point he looked at me and he said, do you think that your work is more important than mine? which is a very good and important question because we all need to understand how, who we are, how God made and wired us and what we do, our vocations and the relationships that we are a part of, our family, friends and community and the service that we offer in those integrated spheres of our lives. Maybe you could name even more spheres. We all need to understand how all of those are connected to and serve to advance God's mission and kingdom in the world that he has created and placed us within. 
And part of that is understanding that there is a very real sense in which no one calling or vocation is more important than the other. The stay-at-home mom, from the plumber to the home builder to the mailman to the cook to the construction worker to the pastor to the store clerk, all vocations and all of our lives should be done with an eye toward mission. Directly or indirectly, there might be direct ways that that happens. It might be, it might be on the front lines or you might be on the supply lines. But it should be connected to mission. I was reading this week, and the author of an article shared the story of standing, quote, I was standing in a neighbor's backyard a little while ago. He's a Lutheran minister. He and his adult son were planting a tree, and his son made the remark that he was on mission planting that tree. What do you think? Is that true? Is the church's mission to plant trees, to bake good bread, to be godly lawyers who pursue justice? What about your job? Whatever your job is, what does it have to do with the mission of God and the mission of the church? By the way, interesting question here, what is the church? We. That's kind of important. A unified story of God. (laughs) That's biblical theology. (laughs) But thank you for answering a question that I didn't ask. I appreciate that. And what do you think this is, class? I don't know, but it must be Jesus. And what does, so what does your job have to do with the mission of God and the mission of the church? And what does it have to do with ministry? And what does that word even mean? What does ministry mean? And are ministry, quote unquote, jobs, you know, pastors, missionaries, parachurch workers, somehow better than all the other callings that, and jobs that are required to run a world? To answer these questions, once again, we want to think through the storyline of the Bible. So tonight we're going to actually think through two kind of storylines of the Bible. The first is how as humans we bear the image of God. And the second, and connected to it and similar to the story of sacrifice, is a story about getting rescued. And we're going to go through six episodes, so not just four but six episodes, six kind of main episodes of the overall story. Creation, fall, Israel, Messiah, church, and glory. You have those in your handout in front of you. So storyline number one, image is everything. First step, creation. So if we turn to Genesis 1, in the very beginning of the story, we read in Genesis 1 that God creates the plants and the animals, each according to its kind. So if you go through that chapter, you hear that phrase over and over again. Each according to its kind. Each according to its kind. Each according to its kind. Every apple is patterned after every other apple. Every zebra is patterned after every other, or as we should properly say, maybe zebra. I love that UK, Tim. I just love them. But then... In Genesis 1.26, we read this amazing contrast. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Man is not patterned after another man. He's patterned after God. He uniquely mirrors or resembles or represents or bears forth the image of God. Now, being uniquely created in the image of God, humans must uniquely image or reflect or represent God and God's glory before the rest of creation. Now, remember, this is connected back 
right? So we want to remember these other themes that we've gone through. Remember, we talked about kingdom through covenant, and we saw this concept of image, right? And, and, we, and we talked about how uh, kings or gods, that's what they would do to spread their glory throughout a realm was they would place images of themselves. So you would have images of the gods, and that was how the, the glory of that being or that king would be represented through his realm. And that's what God does with us. We are his image bearers. He has marked us with his image and he puts us, that's why he says, be fruitful, right? And multiply and fill the earth, thus expanding his image and his kingdom over the face of the globe. Like a son who acts like his father and follows in his father's footsteps, right? Our kids for good or ill, depending on the parent, for good or ill, they bear marks of who we are. I was just talking with um, some dear friends, ladies in our church. My mom was here for 10 days. And one of these ladies asked her to go to coffee. And then a few of them went to coffee with her and spent about two and a half hours with my mom. And I saw one of these ladies, well, this was just a couple of days ago, um, at, uh, at our church services. And she said, when I watched your mom, I saw all kinds of mannerisms like you do all the time. <laughs> I said, yeah, and you see this really funky hairline? That's her fault too, right? Like, so we're marked by the people that have made us in the same way we are like our heavenly and divine father. Man and woman is designed to represent God's character and rule over creation. We continue from Genesis 1.26. They will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and the whole earth and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So from the very beginning, it's this establishment of we are to bear his image. Then the fall, which we read about in Genesis 3. And we discover that man decides not to represent God's rule, but he revolts against God and goes to work representing his own rule. Genesis 3, 4, and 5. The serpent talking to Eve. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you'll be like God. You can be God. And she thinks, hmm, me? Like God? And so Adam and Eve took and ate. And God therefore gave man what he asked for. Indirectly, he banished humanity from his presence, corrupt and perverted. And as a result of this fall from grace, the mirror is bent, if you will, if you could bend a mirror. And so a false image is now portrayed like a grotesque carnival mirror in one of those fun houses. And human rule becomes abusive and oppressive and exploitative. So step one, man is created to bear the image of God and his rule and his character. Step two, man decides to bear forth his own rule, display his own glory, corrupting his ability to properly and fully display the glory of God. Step three, Israel. 
God in his mercy has a plan to both save and use a group of people for accomplishing his original purpose for creation, the display of his glory by them being image bearers of God. As we've discussed before, this idea of a son looking like a father and following in a father's footsteps, Exodus 4, he even calls the nation of Israel his son, verses 22 and 23. And why a son? Because sons look like their dads. And they follow in their father's footsteps. They bear the image of their fathers. And then on the way to the promised land, God takes this son to a mountain called Sinai. Does that sound familiar? We know this story, don't we? A son taking, a father taking a son to a mountain. If you turn to Exodus 20, we see this father saying a number of things to his son named Israel. Exodus 23. Do not have other gods besides me. No other gods. Verse 4. Do not make an idol for yourself. So don't make other images, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. So Israel was to keep the first commandment. Do not have other gods besides me by displaying God's image and glory, which naturally excludes bowing down to some other image made with human hands. And God warned that if this son Israel did chase after other images and failed to display God's holy character, he would cast him out of this promised land. Does that story sound familiar? What's that story sound like? Who got cast out of a land for not displaying God's character? Adam and Eve. Adam, the first son of God. Many of us are familiar with that tragic tale of Israel. They end up not choosing. They didn't choose God's image, but others. They cast him out, and then God cast him out of his presence in the land, just as he had cast his first son, Adam, out of the garden and his presence. So one of the main lessons of ancient Israel is that fallen human beings left to themselves cannot properly bear the image of God's character and glory. So step four, the Messiah. If you want, you could turn to Luke 3, 21. When all the people were baptized, verse 21, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. It's one of my favorite texts in the Bible. Um, You can read it as well in Matthew chapter 3. I think part of it is because in one sense, uh, there's this approval of Jesus before he's really done anything. Now, in one sense, that's not true, right? Because, of course, he has done something. He's already condescended. He's already taken on flesh. He's born of a Virgin Mary. He's spent 30 years suffering as a human being. He's made tables and chairs with his dad. He's honored his father and his mother. And he's lived as a good Israelite. He's done all those things, but... This is at the beginning. This is the launch of his ministry, right? He he hasn't done his ministry. What we kind of think of as the main calling of Jesus. And the father is already so 
pleased with Jesus. And then we can fast forward into the, into the rest of the New Testament and, and we read so much of Paul talking about how we're in Christ, that when, that when we're rescued and that when the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates us and, and, and fills us with the Spirit of Messiah, that we're in Him so that just as much as it is true for Jesus, the Father now looks down at us and says, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. If I was ever going to get a tattoo, this is the tattoo I would get. I would put that verse on each of my forearms and a dove on my neck to remind myself, this is, this is my identity. A son of God, a father who is happy with me. There's nothing that I can do these are the kind of statements that we need for ourselves when we need to preach to ourselves. There's nothing that I can possibly do that will cause God to love me more than he loves me in this moment right now. There's nothing I can do to increase his love. And there's nothing I can do that will cause him to love me any less than he loves me right now in this moment. That's amazing. That's amazing. And he loves me so much He's not going to leave me the way that I am in this moment right now. <laughs> okay, that was all free. <laughs> Here is a son in whom the father is well pleased, who has done all that was asked of him so far in the mission of God to rescue the world. And then in Luke's account, so I wanted to take you to Matthew because that's, there's, a lot that surrounds Matthew 3 that I just really love. But in Luke's account, what's fascinating is what immediately follows a genealogy. Matthew begins with a genealogy because he has a different purpose in telling the story of Jesus. Luke puts a genealogy after this event, and it begins with the story right where it stands at this moment in history with Jesus, and it works its way all the way back to ending in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, son of Enosh, son of Seth, son of Adam, the son of God. And so now that Luke has taken us all the way back to the beginning of the story, the story we just rehearsed in the fall just moments ago, right? Luke jettisons us then in verse 39, back to the present, right? What he does, this is just absolutely amazing, you guys. He folds history in on it. He takes the story that he's just laid out and then he folds the points in on itself to show us Satan now tempting another son of God once again. Takes all the way back to the beginning. Oh, did you remember this, you guys? Look what's happened. Tempted Adam, son of God, fails to bear the image. Now he's tempting Jesus, this one in whom the Father is well pleased, who's bearing the image of God perfectly, a, father, a son looking like his father, and who arrives on the scene once again. Satan. But Jesus, the beloved son, accomplishes what Adam could not, what Israel failed to do, and he perfectly bears the image of and glorifies God by what? Listening to and remembering God's word. Hey, isn't this why Paul says <laughs> to take up the full armor of God? the sword of the spirit, which is the word of 
God that you will use to fight against the tempter when he comes at you. This son walks through the same territory that they had, but does what he was supposed to do, fulfills his purpose, lives out the mission. Like father, like son. No wonder the writers of the New Testament epistles look back and call him the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. The radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. Jesus himself saying, the one who has seen me, what, do you know it? Has seen the Father. <laughs> what does that sound like? A mirror, a reflection. Looking at me, you see him. How can you say you haven't met the Father? <laughs> and the problem of the world in Jesus is solved. Step five, the church. So why have we spent all of this time moving from creation through the fall onto Israel and then the example of the Messiah so that you might see the role of the church in this layer of the story to understand our purpose in this world. L listen to some of the texts of the new covenant. Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of, to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He's not supposed to be the only child. It's a whole family that's supposed to look like his father. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Who are those men? Adam and Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the king and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this is from the king who is the spirit. Colossians 3, 9 and 10, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So what is God calling the church to do? We are to display the character and likeness and image and glory of the Son and the Father in the heavenly realm. For example, the Father is a peacemaker. You're supposed to be peacemakers. The Father loves his enemies, so you must love your enemies. The Father and I are one. Jesus says, so therefore you must be one. My father is perfect, so you must be perfect. And grateful that he set the bar low. <laughs> the father sent me, so I am sending you. So you just, you think, what, what you're to think of is, what are, if you read a systematic theology, and you want to, um, one of the things that it'll do is it'll, it'll work you through um, a theology of God. It'll work you through Christology, so a theology of the Messiah, doctrine of sin, doctrine of the, you know, pneumatology, doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And when, you, when you're studying God, they'll break it out into these 
two different kinds of attributes, communicable attributes and non-communicable attributes, right? And so what that means is you know, just think like communicable disease, right? Like thing, things that can be passed on and things that can't be passed on. So there are attributes of God that we can bear forth as his image bears, and there are attributes of God that we cannot. So what, what are some attributes of God that we cannot image forth? What are some of... Omnipotence. Omnipotence. Do people know what these are? Does everybody know what omnipotence is? All so omni, like all powerful. Like we just like when I grew up and I went and saw Christopher Reeves and Superman. I just had dreams of like flying for like the next five nights, and then I stood at the end of the dock at Serpent Lake, and I would like jump and see if I could fly, and I just landed in the water every time. Go figure. Wasn't all powerful. Omniscience, someone says. What does that mean? All-knowing. All-knowing. What are other attributes of God? That... What's that? Those are distinct. Because we are eternal beings, just not eternal in the same way that God is. We just need to clarify that. Yeah, so he's always been, always is, always will be. What is there... Yes, immortal. Yes, you know, you're right. Right. That's what I meant in my head. But yes, yes, immortal. Thank you. What about them? Can we perform them? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. He sent them out with power and the Spirit, and they did great acts. But it's not Exactly. It's not our power. Yeah, so it's not the same. Yeah, that's a good distinction. That's true. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and if you, you know, if you, if you're really going to parse that correctly, you would say, you probably wouldn't call that, like, it's not an attribute that I have. I think Tim is right. That's something that he's doing through me. So it's not like my attribute in that sense, but... Okay, so what are some things that we can communicate? What are things that we can bear forth that are true of God and should be true of us as image bearers of God? Love. 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 Oh, yes, love. Oh, man, we need love. All oh, the Beatles sang it. They just <laughs> saw the White Album in the Howl Mercantile today. Truth, yes. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Oh, man. Isn't that a tough one sometimes? My word. And then we have to remember what Paul says. Uh, be tenderhearted, forgiving, bearing with one another, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Oh, forgiveness. What else? What are other attributes? Be holy as I am holy. That seems like a really, that seems like to tread on non communicable. What else? Yes. Creative, yes, absolutely. Good one. What else? Faith. Faith, yeah. I know it's a strange answer, but um, like I heard that God, like in creating, that was an act of Him having faith because He saw it and then He spoke it and it happened. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I don't know that. I'd have to think about that further. I think um, what I was thinking more is is. I see that represented within the Trinity and 
Jesus's submission to the Father and believing that what he said was right and true and um I just think it has to be because it says that faith, hope and love are all eternal so it started so it has to be and he asked us to do it. Interesting. Yeah. I have to think about that more exactly how you're saying it but yeah, what are some others? Let's keep going. You must proclaim him gentleness So what's the attribute? Uh, we have the ability. We have the ability to express the word and to share the Lord with everyone. So maybe wisdom. I heard we in there would be. We don't have wisdom, but we can reflect God's wisdom. I think we do. I think that's a communicable attribute. I think yeah. that there is a wisdom that's given to man. Yeah. What else? Not in the, how God does that, yeah, how God does that is different. Yeah, right. Um, I think that it is somewhat of a, I don't think it's the exact same in the way that God creates, but close. What else? Submission. All the, right. Fruit, just to be clear, the fruit of the spirit, right? So I, I think why that's, I think that's why that's important is because I think a lot of times people will say it's the fruits of the Spirit, and so I, I have these three and not these others, and I think really what Paul means is he uses a singular there, which is a collective singular. And, um, and so I think he's like, these are all operating together. In, so what are, what are some others that we haven't mentioned that are part of the fruit of the Spirit? So we mentioned love. Louder. You're a lawyer. Come on, argue it. <laughs> Yeah, gentleness. Self-control, long-suffering. Yeah. Have we said grace? Grace. You did? I said it. Mercy? Forbearance? Generosity? Yeah, we could, we could go on and on. Part of why I want to do that is to have you think about that because that that's who we're supposed to be. We're, we're to... Now, the danger here is you get all um, shame-ridden about this or guilt-ridden about it or I feel overwhelmed that I have to... That's not how I want your heart to respond and that's not how he wants your heart to respond. Um, how, we, how we should respond is... We, we have this opportunity and this calling and this joy to be, have you ever seen um, like really massive, huge uh, solar panel fields? Like just ginormous ones? Like that's, yeah, that, that's, that's us. Like that's us. And, and we get to reflect this amazing God. Um, and, and maybe actually that's the wrong analogy maybe the analogy is almost better like a prism that like takes this light and then all kinds of different colors you see through the prism that's what we get to do we get to image forth and bear forth and shine forth and radiate forth all of these different aspects of who god is on a daily basis 
We have opportunity for multiple expressions of the character of God on a daily basis. Finally, glory. We will image him most perfectly when we see him perfectly in the new heavens and new earth. Dear friends, John writes, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Faith will no longer be necessary. Reference, 1 John 3, 2. Thank you, Kyle. Good question. So, holy like him, loving like him, united like him, all of these other attributes that we've listed, this verse isn't promising that we're going to be gods. <laughs> don't, don't take it there. It's promising that our souls will gleam brightly with his character and glory. Now, no longer the bent mirrors, but perfect mirrors facing toward the sun, if you will. So, if you follow the story, here's a recap. God created the world and humankind to display the image and glory of who he is. That's his mission for humanity. Image is everything. Adam and Eve, who were supposed to image God's character, didn't. Neither did the people of Israel. The son did. The Messiah, Jesus, God, came to display God. And in the Messiah, God came to rescue us. And now the church is called to bear his image and display the character and glory of God to all the universe, right? All the universe is watching. Romans 8. Creation longs for what? The revealing of the sons and daughters of God in glory. You just can't wait. They're just like waiting to see what we're talking about happen. We're called to do that, testifying in word and action to his great wisdom and work of salvation. In other words, God intends to use the corporate life, if you will, not corporate as in corporation, but corporate as in gathered, of the local church in local expression, local families, to accomplish his creation purposes, displaying his wise, holy, and loving image for all the world to see. That, in one sense, is the mission of the church, to display the image of God and to do so in a way that's set apart from humanity because they only present, humanity only presents distorted images, right? They're still bearing the image of God. All of us are made in the image of God, believe or unbelieve. Our work is an image recovery work. That's what we're about. We are to live as the transformed humanity. Jesus says this in Matthew 5. Let's read it this morning. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt shall lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light. That's a warning. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory, excuse me, to your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. But where does the Great Commission fit into all of this? If Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert are right in their book that the Great Commission is the mission. So, so we've started it with a very broad answer, right? That the mission of the church is to image forth God in everything and all that you are and all that you do. 
they are providing a narrower answer. So if, that, if that's a broad answer, their narrow answer is the Great Commission is the mission. Make disciples, baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything that Jesus commanded, which is right. Yes. We are, I want grace to not be an either-or people, but a both-and people. It doesn't have to be either a brownie or ice cream. It can be both the brownie and ice cream. Isn't both-and really the way we want to live? I think it is. Storyline two. We must be rescued. Yes. Sorry. The only reason I bring this up is all of your passages on image. The difference between, for me anyway, is the Great Commission is placed firmly within the authority that Jesus claims. And I don't know if we're getting there. Speak to that. Yes, we're getting there. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. And it's common. Storyline two, we must be rescued through a sacrifice. And so here, this is a little bit of um, the story of sacrifice. Um, maybe just a slightly different angle, a little bit truncated. I think you'll see where it's going when we bring them both together. So creation, Adam and Eve walked with uh, God in the garden, sinless, with the promise of eternal life. The fall, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. They earn the judgment of death. Adam doesn't have merely a corruption problem, but he has a guilt problem. He's broken a law and earned a penalty. So God foreshadows the solution by sacrificing a couple of animals and giving Adam and Eve the animal skin to cover their nakedness and shame. Maybe it was one animal, I'm not sure. Israel. God calls Abraham, and then he saves Abraham's descendants out of slavery in Egypt, brings them across the Red Sea as a great act of salvation. But first he demonstrates through the Passover sacrifice that he would pass over their sin. He gives them his law, which would teach them that the real salvation they needed would be from themselves and their own sin. Included in that law are sin offerings, provisions for a day of atonement. And sure enough, the people sinned and were then exiled. The lesson being they could not save themselves. They needed a Savior and a Messiah. The good news is the Messiah comes as their savior. He came not only as a perfect kingly son who bore the image of God, but also as the Passover lamb who would pay the price for sin by being nailed to a cross. He would solve not just Adam's corruption problem, but would pay and take care of Adam's guilt problem too. Colossians 2 says that if we've repented of our sins and put our trust in Messiah, verse 13 then God forgives us all our trespasses. He erases the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and takes it away by nailing it to the cross. Jesus perfectly obeyed by going to the cross and paying the penalty for a people so that they could be rescued. The Father raises him from the dead, defeating sin and death, and gives him all authority. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And what is the first thing that Jesus does after being vindicated as king, after being handed all authority, after perfectly reflecting the image and glory of God, what does he turn to his people and do with all that authority? He commissions them. He gives them a mission. The church. And here's the mission that he gave us, gives us. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what is the mission of the church? Well, we've already seen from a broader perspective, the mission of the church is to bear the image of God and reflect who he is in and through all areas of our lives. And now in this narrower sense, we have to say the church's mission is to make disciples of all nations, to baptize, and to teach everything that Jesus commanded. Our job is to point the way to salvation. And we have to start here because the lesson of the Old Testament, and I, where's the text that says there is a way that, I didn't search it. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. So we're, I'm sure it's a proverb. Um, so what does that mean? It means that we are surrounded by people who are thinking that they're going on the right way, but what they are on is a mountain pass road and the bridge is out and there's no sign and they're going over the edge of the cliff and they think they're headed in the right direction. And what's going to stop them from going off the edge of the cliff? Us. We have to open our mouths. We have to say, you're going to walk over a cliff. You're going to be dashed on rocks. Stop going that way and go this way. Repent and believe. It is utterly insufficient to walk up to a person who is walking toward a cliff and to love them in your heart, to hug them, give them your clothes, prepare a meal for them, give them medical aid, live as a transformed humanity without saying anything. You must, must, must open your mouth and say, you're walking off a cliff. Repent. Turn away from that direction. At the heart of the church's mission is to speak words to call people to repentance to preach the good news strike that there, there's all these there's all these times in the english translation of the bible you see you'll see preaching the, the word is really proclaim so what happens is i think is sometimes christians read that and they think oh that's what pastors do that's what preachers do they preach i don't preach the, the word is proclaim proclaim it just means, what does proclaim mean? Just tell. <laughs> like, proclaim, like, when I think proclaim, I think of, like, all of the old fantasies, uh, the, the stories that we read of, you know, like, medieval times, and what were there? There were these heralds that were sent into towns before the king would arrive, right? And what would they do? They would proclaim, the king is coming, the king is coming. They would warn all the people of the coming of the king. We are heralds. We're proclaimers. We're called to say salvation is this way. And if we don't do that, then the loving, hugging, giving clothes, preparing meals, humanitarian aid, all of that is for nothing. Because all you did was take care of them in this life. You took care of physical needs and you didn't take care of their immortal needs. I was reading um, in, a, in my Lenten devotional 
And uh, I was reading Matthew, it was in Matthew 24. And, you know, Jesus is giving these parables about, you know, I, I, think, I think we forget that, um, so we're citizens of, the Bible says we're citizens of, of heaven. We're citizens of the heavenly realm is what that means. Okay, again, think spiritual realm, kind of the realm that we can, we can see and the realm that we can't see spiritual realm. Don't think of heaven and, you know, don't look up to the left corner of the room. It, it's not up there. It's this realm that you can't see. And we're citizens of that realm even as we operate in this realm. I was actually listening to a philosopher the other day and they were having this conversation about citizenship and that it was rooted in... You see, we think of citizenship and we just immediately think of all the benefits. Of all these benefits because I'm an American citizen. I have all these benefits because I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm under God. But citizenship just isn't benefits, it's responsibilities. There are responsibilities bound up in citizenship. In this country, our country was founded on that, is what I was listening to the philosopher, and then my mind went to, it's the same way! Which is why Americans can be such lousy Christians, maybe. Because we're lousy citizens of this country because all we think about, isn't it what we talk about now? It's entitlement and equity. Everybody's got to get theirs. But there's supposed to be responsibilities that we have. And there are responsibilities laid on us. And, and the master, Jesus is telling these parables, and the master is going to go away. And what do the servants do when the master is away? And when the master comes back, there's expectations. And he's going to look at, here's the responsibilities I gave you. And did you live up to those responsibilities? The, the author, N.T. Wright, is the author of this devotional. He's, ta he's talking about this, right? Like, he says, in these kinds of parables, there's a severe warning for all Christian leaders and teachers. So, sometimes people seem to suppose that it doesn't really matter how you behave. That we can keep the wheels of the church turning all right without paying too much attention to the teaching of Jesus himself or the doctrine and lifestyle taught by his first followers. That attitude is then held in place, so it, that's held on to, by a sneering rejection of all talk of a future judgment. Such talk, it seems, fell out of fashion some time ago. And we can keep it that way, people seem to think, by telling horror stories about, you know, old fire and brimstone kinds of preachers trying to scare people into good behavior. And we know how bad that is. But just because people have overstated things in one direction, that doesn't mean that there isn't a danger of overstatement in the other direction. If Lent is a time of reflection, penitence, and discipline for all Christians... Perhaps it is especially so that, that we should reflect. Penitence, right? Repentance. Increase in discipline. For those of us who dare to think of, our, of ourselves as slaves in charge of part of Jesus' household. He's put us in charge. And a reckoning is coming. Finally, Glory. One day, says the book of Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus the Messiah is king. There will no longer be the need to make disciples because all will know who Jesus is and they will know that either to their endless joy or to their endless torment. We will either bow in worship or bow in defeat. Just think about that. 
in the meantime, of course, the mission of the church is to tell people this good news of how it may turn out for them. That by trusting God to make disciples of them through our faithful proclamation, it can solve their problem. They can bow the knee now to get endless joy instead of bowing in defeat and judgment. Is there someone that you know that doesn't know Jesus? And are you thinking about these two alternative paths for them? So how do we put these two stories together? Well, here's where the story of our lives very much parts ways with the story of Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. In case you know you still had that image in your mind, I, I would love to be Ethan Hunt. He's very cool. And he has lots of really neat gadgets. But Ethan Hunt was given an option, right? This is your mission should you choose to accept it. You don't have a choice. Jesus is king. And we are subjects. And let's be clear on that. Let's be clear on that. And subjects follow where their good king leads. Because that's what leads to a life of flourishing and joy. Because he's a good king. And a life of obedience to our king means merging these two storylines, living as the true humanity, bearing the image of God, and proclaiming the good news. We need both the broad view from the first storyline and the more narrow view from the second. We need both storylines to merge in our lives. Maybe another way to think about it is like this. At the core of our mission is proclaiming the good news and making disciples. And surrounding and supporting that core is the reality of a transformed, bearing the image of God, growing one step closer to Jesus, community. Do you see how those can operate together? So how do we put those two stories? So so how do we do that? I think we can see intellectually how it looks. How do we do it? Well, I think we get a little hint of it in the salt and light passage that I read to you earlier from Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And I'm going to read to you, maybe it helps read it, to you in a different translation. I I get help by reading different translations. I'm actually going to read a paraphrase, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, Matthew 5, 13. (laughs) This is just great. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? you've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public. As public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop on a light stand... Shine! Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. So what is Jesus saying? My whole life needs to be salty or distinct. My whole life needs to be a light. And the implicit assumption in both of these texts is that we, as salt and light, are in contact with those in the world around us who don't know our king. 
There's no way, there's absolutely no other way for us to be those things if that isn't the case. Salt isn't useful until it's forced out of a salt shaker. <laughs> Duh. Right? Like, wow, sweetie, these eggs are so bland. Well, there's the salt on the table. Huh, they still taste bland. Have you shook the salt out of the shaker, Matthew? Oh! Now I get it. And lights are not useful all by themselves out in the middle of nowhere where no one can benefit from their lumens. Separated. So that's the first step. I need to be in contact with those in the world around me who don't know my king so I can be salt and light. But it still begs the question, how is it? Okay, so if that's the case, if, if I'm doing that, if I'm trying to be salt and light, I'm trying to image forth these attributes and beauty and character of who God is, how is it that people will know to associate my life with the Father in heaven? Because maybe they're just going to think I'm a really nice guy. One of our elders shared with me, and I'm not going to give names here. I'm not afraid of giving the name of the elder. That's not the point. It's the, it's the next person. So he shared with me the story of engaging with a religious leader in our town. And this religious leader was talking about some humanitarian efforts that they were involved in. And I mean, stunning work. Stunning work. Amazing work. Incredibly helpful work. And our elder asked, that, that's, I mean, <laughs> I'm learning so much. Like, I, I want to be like you. So now can you tell me how do you talk, like, how do you connect that to Jesus? Where does that, in this whole structure that you just described, and, and the person like blanched, like backed up a step and said, oh, I would never pretend to tell someone what they should believe. This is a religious leader in our community. It's devastating. And I don't want to be that. So, so how is it that people know to associate my life if I'm living a life, as, if we're living in grace as a transformed community, if when we give money to, um, oh shoot. See, now I'm thinking of my old city that 15 years was called Sharing and Caring, but here it's called... Caring and Sharing. Is it really? It's called Caring and Sharing. Okay, I, okay well, I'm just all... I'm, now I'm even more confused, I feel like. Anyway, we, we get to that. We get to PRC. There's these things that we're doing in the community to try and love on our community. Certainly we can do more, but how are they going to know that we're not just nice people? Well, the first and obvious answer is to open our mouths and tell them why we're doing what we're doing. Connect the dots for them. Give them the reason for why we do the things we do. And then they will know to give credit to our Father in heaven for why we have done what we have done. They may not do that, but Jesus says the possibility is there and real. Another way to do that, to make sure that people understand that, is through our association with the people of God and the children of God in the family and institution that he established through the apostles. 
Jesus points to this in Matthew 16 and 18 and 28 when he gives first Peter and then local churches the authority to bind on earth what's bound in heaven and loose on earth what's loosed in heaven. When he tells us to baptize people into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And further, when he describes that how we will be known is as the church of the Messiah, a baptized family led by elder, shepherd, overseer, pastors who are meant to live out this great commission together. This is an important clarification as the Bible does not conceive of non-baptized believers and children of God and by definition, it doesn't conceive of lone ranger sons and daughters of God. We must be connected into a local, healthy, functioning ecclesia, a gathering of the people of God. The Bible doesn't conceive of it any other way. In other words, for me to fulfill my Matthew 5 all-of-life job of displaying the image of the Father in heaven by being salt and light, I need to be formally affirmed as a disciple by being baptized into God and being part of a local church family. So what is the mission of the church? We put on the table for discussion at the beginning that some people have said it's the Great Commission and some have said it's the Great Commandment. It's not either or. It's both and. The mission of the church as a functioning family working together is the Great Commission. It's that narrower answer that we've just worked through to make disciples by sharing our lives and the good news with people in darkness and then to baptize them into the family after they've repented and believed and then to teach them everything that Jesus commanded, all of it helping them to grow one step closer to Jesus in the process. To the extent that we... Grace Church all work together by raising money, hiring pastors, spending time together as a family in the Sunday gathering and learning environments and participating in connection and community groups all within the gentle environment of the good news plus safety plus time. Our aspiration is that God will use all of that to help people grow one step closer to Jesus. And if that isn't happening, something's wrong in us. period. If there are not, and, and I want to be careful because we don't save anybody. God will do that work. And I want to be careful because it maybe takes a long time. I, I have missionary friends who served in incredibly difficult places for 20 years without seeing any fruit. And then in year 21 to 25, amazing things happened because they didn't go at year five, well, I guess it doesn't work, or year 10, I guess, or 15, or 20. So we have to be careful. They had all kinds of self-reflection and prayer and talking to missionary leaders and right all of that. Are, are we being faithful? But with all those kinds of provisos and maybe we could give more but I don't want to I don't want to give excuses I trust that I want to believe that what was true for Paul when God said Paul don't give up there are people in this town I mean to save I just feel like in my heart there's people in this town he wants to save I don't know that I'm not God but I think it's true And that, okay, so the narrow focus that is set within the broader storyline that we've worked through, of bearing brightly the image of God in all areas and aspects of our lives, also includes our individual lives. So see, I'm just, 
I'm, I'm going back and forth for you here to see it. it. We've got to think holistically. And this is, is this not where we might live out the great commandment, which is another way to speak about living as the true humanity and bearing the image of God, to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves, which means bearing the image of God personally, right? Personally with someone else in word and deed. It involves not just teaching everything Jesus commanded, but obeying everything Jesus commanded. Oh my goodness, the church needs to hear that. I can remember years ago listening to a talk by Jeff Vanderstelt um, when he was trying to work this out and planting a new church in Seattle. And so I'm watching this lecture. And he says at one point in the lecture, so he's teaching church leaders like what they're trying to do in Seattle. And he says, I've actually said to our people, we're not starting any more Bible studies. And I'm not doing any more extensive teaching because you all aren't obeying what I've given you now. So why am I just going to cause more disobedience in your life? Because you're making me sick. Like, I need you to work on what I've given you so far. So we're just going to keep going into that and I'm giving you nothing new because you're not showing any obedience whatsoever. In the church... And speaking capital T, capital C, I'm not beating you up, Grace Church. It's not what I'm doing. But there is, and I can't see, the, I don't have the eyes of Jesus to see, but there is a kind of gluttony in the church. We just keep taking in more and more information and getting fatter and fatter and fatter because we never get out and exercise spiritually what God has called us to do. Word and deed. It has to be both. Listen, and you guys, just to be clear, I'm talking to myself, okay? The, We're hearing you, man. I'm not, like, this isn't, oh, you all should, maybe you should just, you know, hang out with me for the next five days and you'll really see how it's done. God help me. I'd be terrified if you hung out with me the next five days. <laughs> see all my disobedience. How do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> I hang out with people that oh, okay. the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thanks for clarifying, because I thought you meant the first, and I was like, wow, I really opened up my mouth and put my foot in it, didn't I? I've got some more ideas, and then we should... Part of it is helping each other. So just, I think I'm going to answer that. What does this mean for you and your life's mission? First, an indispensable part of the Christian life is to be a committed family member of a local church family. Listen to the Great Commission once again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He's, he's speaking to a, a plural here. Baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So we go and make disciples. How? By teaching, proclaiming the good news. By getting them to see the, their need of repentance. When they repent and believe, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit by identifying ourselves with the Messiah and Messiah's people. Do people know you love and follow Jesus? Do the people in your life know that? Not just the grace people, not just the churchy people. 
We are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are marked by Jesus through baptism. We are identified with him, filled with him, transformed by him to bear his image before a watching and needing world. We explicitly identify with him and with his people in the context of a local church family. When you walk into, oh my goodness, I didn't bring him with me. Can you believe that? I took my wallet and my, I always take my wallet and my phone out of my pockets when I teach and preach. I don't know why, I just do. <laughs> and so my little invite, my Easter invite cards aren't in my pocket. Okay, so confession time. I don't want to tell you this, but I, sh- I need to tell you this. So I, I walk into Howell today because I'm getting tired. I'm doing that head, head bob thing when I'm studying at about three. So I, I go to Howell, give me a quad shot latte. Load me up. And so I'm walking in and I, you know, I'm, I'm reading because I've got to get my wallet out and, and I feel those Easter invite cards there. And I think, how am I going to work this into conversation? And I'm not going to say his name, but with him. And, and I just think, I got to get my coffee. I got to go back. I got to wrap up this seminar for tonight. I don't have time for a con- oh, That's what I'm thinking. Like the reasons why I can't give the card. Then he wasn't there. So that point was moot. But um, am I willing to identify with my local church family? doesn't mean that we can be jerks. And it doesn't mean that we always have to be direct. But I've had to have some hard conversations with some of my own family members. And my phrase to them is, there will never be anybody in hell who's thankful that they weren't offended on earth. They're not going to be thankful in heaven that we didn't offend them. So again, I guess I, I want to be careful and say, yeah, we're not in the business of being jerks. Offense is always taken by the other person, not by the giver. And even that's probably an overstatement, so I need to soften that. But our task, our command is to offer truth and love. But if we don't even offer it for fear of offense, that's, that's Satan's work. That's not the Lord's work. Yeah, so you just gave 20 seconds on it. Sorry. <laughs> you don't have to apologize. So yeah. let me respond to that is... Um, and this is a whole nother, I mean, this would be a whole nother really healthy conversation, I think, um, is for us to think, because there are ways, so when you say, I have to soften something, maybe, or I have to deliver in love, um, there, are, there are times where it, not, it might not be the right time. Like if I, I think we need to make distinctions between the, I'm on an airplane with a person in the middle seat, this is the only time I'm probably ever going to see them. This is my opportunity. Versus there's the barista that's in my coffee shop that I'm trying to build a relationship with. Now, again, you could immediately say, yeah, but they could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Yep, they could. And I'm going to have to trust God with that. But where I'm going to, I think in the context of our culture in Salida, as much as I know of it, only a year in, and so you guys know it bet way better than I do. But as much as I know of it, me... If I walk into Cafe Don the first time and I'm like, hey, Garrett, can I uh, have a vanilla latte? And you need to be saved. 
because, wow, I can already tell you don't know Jesus. <laughs> right, right, right. So, like, that's, I think that's what you're saying. That that's almost like a giving of offense. You're, you're building it. Um, but I, I firmly believe you that um, do not fear man, but fear God, who cannot harm you, ultimately, but fear God, who can only, no, no, I misquoted that. Do not fear man, who can only kill you. <laughs> he can only kill you. So I kill you. That seems like a lot. No, fear God, who can not only kill you, but can throw both your body and soul into hell. So Jesus is so helpful to go, why are you afraid of man? Because you have a father who gave you a command. It's called the great commandment. The great commission, which is just another commandment, right? It's a, go. He's commanding. Imperative. I'm going to come back to that in just a second, I think, and flesh that out just a little bit more by way of example. So, um, lost my place. Uh, we're meant to live out this commission Together, the Bible doesn't conceive of non-baptized believers, doesn't conceive of Lone Ranger. What happened there? I, here we go. No, I'm, now I'm on my right page. Sorry. Um, you have to be a part of a committed, a committed family member of a local church family. So it is as a part of a healthy, Bible-saturated, God-glorifying, Jesus-centered, spirit-filled people of God that we are instructed. We're instructed. So it's not just identifying. It's getting instruction in a life of what it looks like to grow one step closer to our king. We're always to be growing, always pressing in, always maturing, not coasting or stagnating. Um, okay, I'm, <clears throat> I'm running out of time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fast because I haven't been going fast already. Acting together as a church family, we prioritize preaching the good news to those on the inside and reaching the unreached on the outside. Okay, so I'm just going to say that one. I'm not going to unpack that. It's we always need the good news is my point. We never get past the good news, right? We never get past the good news. Your day-to-day -day mission as a church family member is to represent King Jesus as the transformed humanity in all of your deeds. God bless them, Genesis 1:28, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule a fish of the sea, birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth. So what does that look like in 2023? Namely, every Christian should move into some domain to be what Adam should have been. You move into a classroom, a business manager's office, a playground, a kitchen, a canvas, an algebra problem. You are called to subdue and rule over that domain on God's behalf by creating, bringing life and order and purposes and good. It's why I said when I lived in a place where green things actually grew, <laughs> one of my favorite things, Susan would say, why don't you let the kids mow the lawn? Because it is me having dominion over my little acre of earth. <laughs> yes, I am exerting rule. I am hewing down grass with my toro. <laughs> you are to use your decision-making power and authority to promote, to promote the lives of others and to serve. Like a gardener who works to bring life from the soil, move out into the domains of architecture, engineering, science, art, commerce, law, governance, space travel. Bring order, give shape, create, and in all of it, serve. Plant God's flag in every domain of life as the theologians call this vice regents. You're, you're like vice king. You're all princes and princesses in the kingdom. Boldly go, I was going to say where no man has gone before. 
now it's person, to bring God's rule and glory to that domain. I remember working in the corporate world for 13 years as a Christian. And then I was called into vocational ministry. But, but for years in the corporate world, not being bold. I wasn't bold. I hid my light under a, a bushel. Not like over, like I didn't make that, like I'm getting up this morning, I'm deciding to, you know, put the bucket on. But by design, functionally, that's what I was doing. And then one day, I was working at American Express, financial advisors in the corporate office. One day, I'm, I'm walking down um, the hallway of, of, of all of our offices, and there's, so there was the big LGBTQ plus movement at that point. I think it was just LGBT at that point. And um, it was a purple triangle. So you would put this purple triangle on your office if you were a supporter of this movement. And, I just, and it, the thought struck me, that's so interesting that you get to fly a flag in this environment of just because this is who I want to have sex with. And then, and then it struck me the next morning, we're all standing around outside of our offices and right, it's Monday morning. So what do you talk about on Monday morning during the NFL football season? All the games that everybody watched, right? And their team and who they're cheering for. And right, like you're at work and they're talking about their passion. Right? So their passion is LGBT, or their passion is, and I thought, well, my passion is Jesus. Yeah. So why not? If they get to talk about the Vikings, why can't I talk about Jesus to the same degree? Now, I have to be careful. I want to be a good worker. I don't want to use my, but if the culture approves of this, so then the next Monday, we're standing around and like, oh, yeah, blah, 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 you know, this game. Oh, did you see that catch? Hey, Matthew, what did you do yesterday? I went to church, and let me tell you, I heard this sermon, and it was about Jesus, and here's what he said about Jesus, and it was awesome, and it was fantastic, and I can't wait to serve that way. And like, <laughs> you freak. <laughs> but then like, so what, right? And then, so then I started thinking, okay, how can I do this? living in, my, in this domain of American Express. So people always ask you, how are you doing? I remember reading this old, this old tract, and I don't remember the name of the guy. I think C.J. Mahaney made it famous. The response would be, you know, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. Because it's true. So it's this wonderful self-reminder, and it's a way that a conversation will potentially open up. So we're, at, we're in the little kitchenette, this other guy in, in me. And I'm getting my lunch together, and he's getting his lunch together. He says, how you doing? I said, better than I deserve. He said, okay, come on, Molesky. Better than you deserve? You deserve a lot. You're such a great guy. Like, you really deserve a lot. And I, and I said, you know what? I really don't. I'm a horrible sinner. I deserve nothing but damnation and condemnation and death. And this man who was God, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died so that I could have mercy and grace so that I could look at my life no matter how bad it is and I could realize that no matter what state I'm in, I am better than I deserve because I deserve nothing. And he gave me everything. And he said, okay. <laughs> and walked out of the kitchenette. <laughs> but sometimes when I would say it, they'd continue to have the conversation. Or, or, or that conversation where I was talking about 
Jesus with that group of guys? One of those guys came to my office one day and said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. He shut the door. I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> he said, I am massively addicted to going to strip clubs. It's destroying my marriage and my relationship with my wife. And you seem like the kind of guy that could help me with that. Or then the guy who I said better than I deserve, about eight months later, his wife is diagnosed with cancer. And he says, can we go to lunch? I have something I want to talk to you about. And we talk about that. And his wife dies a number of months later. And I go to the funeral with him. That's not about me. It's about, you, you just don't know what your life, and then actually saying some words, how God is going to bring back those little seeds that you drop, that then that, that's going to come back and give you a, a further opportunity maybe to talk more about what you believe. All right, I got more, but we got to stop. Um, I need to let you go. It's 725. Yeah. It, it's potential. I, I, think we need, I, I think we need to ask God for wisdom of what works best in our community for those things. Again, I'm not trying to make excuses. Okay, I lied. Can I, can I just give you one more thing? Can I give you one more thing? You can, if you have to go, you can go. So I, I want to give you one more thing because this is, okay, will you allow me a personal rant? Do not pray this, when you're thinking about speaking words amongst your deeds, Please do not pray this prayer. Father, will you give me opportunities today? Don't pray that prayer. It's a, it's a horrible prayer. It's a really awful prayer. And, and here's, here's why. I think it's a bit of a cop-out. I think that you can pray that prayer. You can pray it with a good heart. Don't get me wrong. But you can pray it, and then weeks and weeks go by, and you can just say to yourself, well, he just didn't give me any opportunities today. I asked him for opportunities and he didn't give them to me. But that's not true because he gives us opportunities every single day. We are surrounded in Salida with opportunities. They're called humans. <laughs> humans who don't know Jesus. That's our opportunity. So our prayer should not be, Father, give me opportunities. Our prayer you guys, listen to the Apostle Paul in what he prays for. Do you respect the Apostle Paul? Yes. Do you happen to think that he was fairly bold and courageous? Yes. Do you think he was a pretty mature Christian? Would you like to know how he prayed? Writing to a new nascent church in Ephesus, he asked them, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the good news. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. In other words, I've already gotten in trouble for this, 
but pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Okay, which means what? If he's asking to be bold, Ezra, will you pray for me to be bold? What would, you, what would be your immediate thought? Okay, you guys had different thoughts than I did. <laughs> My immediate thought would be, he probably feels like he needs to be more bold than he already is. Yeah. In other words, he's not being bold enough. So would you pray for me to be... So don't pray for opportunities. You will get an opportunity every single day. Pray for boldness so that when the opportunity is staring you in the face in the form of a human being, lost and without hope in this world, you will open your mouth. Father God, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for the patience of these students who stayed good night, 89 minutes. Um, bless us. Make us bold. Father, make us bold as we ought to be so that this message that you've given to us in our hearts and transformed our souls, that we would speak it. Father, bring revival. Bring revival in grace and then through grace to our community. How great would it be to have a park service with 30 baptisms of new believers who didn't know Jesus today, but know him this summer. Do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.